Just a quick trigger warning for those listening. This podcast contains references to suicide. Don't give up. Don't give up. Gosh, I've been in tears. I've been suicidal. Last year was a really tough year for me as far as doing the business and things. I fell ill as well, so I'd have a major operation. And that puts everything into context, that we're not here for long. Might sound a bit sadistic, but I think you should be looking forward to Monday and disappointed it's Friday and you haven't done as much, or Saturday and you haven't quite done as much. Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. Chase Vodka, Williams Gin, Tyrrell's Crisps, it wasn't all gin and tonics in the sun for today's guest. Joining me on this episode of Success is in the Mind is bankrupt potato farmer turned millionaire serial entrepreneur, William Chase. Aged 32, William Chase was on the verge of bankruptcy. Having bought his family farm off his dad for some £200,000 aged 20, it started to go downhill as the volatility in the potato market was too much to weather. William's life took a positive turn, however, in 2002 when he learned that rejected spuds were being bought up by US crisp maker Kettle. It was six months later after William returned from the US that Tyrrell's crisps was born. With a 100% gross margin on every bag, Tyrrell's saved William's farm. Turning over some 14 million quid in just a handful of years, William's cash reserves grew and enabled him to invest in a distillery where Chase Vodka and William's Gin was born. In 2008, William sold Tyrrells to Langholm Capital for £30 million, but his entrepreneurial flair didn't stop there. Ladies and gentlemen, William Chase. William, thanks so much for coming on the show and you're linked in on the education section. It says 1960 to 2018, you studied at the University of Life. What a journey you've been on from the verge of bankruptcy to pretty significant wealth. You bought the farm from your dad for £200,000 in 1980, which in today's money is about two million quid. Where does a 20-year-old get nearly two million quid in today's money from? In those days, I had a bank manager that if the bank manager liked you and, and agreed with you, he would lend you the money. So I had a great local bank manager. I had to go and stand outside while he paced up and down and made a decision. And that was it. And my cash flows and budgets in those days weren't too scientific either. They were sort of very basic spreadsheets. But in terms of actually generating that cash, I mean, what was your what was your business plan? What was your spreadsheet? What was your, your vision when you sat down with that bank manager? And you went, right, I need two million quid now, 200,000 quid back then to buy my parents' farm. I think it's shocking to think about it, actually, for a 20-year-old to be to go back into probably any 20-year-old and think about that. But I just had this vision that if I did these things, I would be making some money. So probably one of my first businesses was a muck spreader hire business, which I thought would be a great success. So I bought these secondhand, borrowed the money on top of the farm to buy these manure spreaders. And the farmers just brought them back in a mess and it lost a lot of money. So in my trail of 
business experiences, I've had more failures than I've had successes. But visually out there in the public eye, it looks like everything that Mr. William Chase touches turns to gold. But that, as you say, isn't the case, because really at the point that you borrowed the money over the next sort of 12 years or so, the volatility of the kind of potato market, as it were, um, was just unbearable. You were on the verge of bankruptcy. You really didn't have much left at the end of those 12 years. You know, what went through your head when you nearly lost your parents' farm, your, your childhood home? I think it's survival. I think the key point to your last question about borrowing that money was probably today, comparing today, is to the interest payments because I started at about 12, 13% when I was 20. And by the time I was 30 and I crashed, I was borrowing money at 17% fixed with the bank. And because I was always over my limit, I'd never got enough cash. I was flat out. I was always on extra penalties. So I was probably borrowing money. It was about 25% on those days, paying compound interest on on compound interest so it got me very fit to run very fast and hard to try and beat that <laughs> especially in an industry where there's a lot of cash involved vested in it but not a lot of profit in it how did you get up in the morning what did you do how did you kind of construct a kind of productive day knowing that you kind of didn't have anything in front of you that's a great question because my 20s were involved getting deeper and deeper into debt and having to struggle harder and harder so as a Probably as a mental side, is one of the hardest things. I used to wake up at two, three o'clock in the morning and I really used to worry. And I remember talking to one guy one day and said how much it used to worry me. And he said, I had the same thing. He said, but then I'd go back to sleep when I woke up at seven, eight o'clock, things weren't so bad. So it was that, it's getting yourself adverse to risk and you and you learn. My 20s taught me that the definition of a profit was a reward for a risk. And, and I think that was a good lesson. It was a very hard lesson, really tough lesson to go through my 20s and, and teaching me the, the benefits of, of turning 50 pence into a pound, I guess. Looking at that point when you did go bankrupt, mentally, that's incredibly draining. Mentally, that's also quite unhealthy to a certain extent because, you know, you haven't got anything from a mental point of view. What did you learn about yourself during that point? Oh, that's a, that's a deep question because when I, when I went bankrupt just before, it was in 1992, we had the wettest season on, so I was up to here, well, up to here in debt, actually. It was just a horrendous wet season. It was the Queen's Annus Horribilis. And I was in hospital as well. I was hospitalized for four weeks. I'd fallen off a machine and compressed my, I had a bad back, compressed my back and I lost the use of my legs. So I spent three weeks during potato harvest of in hospital bed with nurses putting a pin in my toe every day. My biggest worry then was whether I could walk again, not all the debtors. There were some people still ringing me when I was in hospital and farmers ringing me saying when I'm going to get off their land or what's going to happen to their potatoes. And and that was that was quite a... But I think, again, if you're not facing mortality, but you're facing something like losing your legs, you, you, it just takes over. And, it's, and, and coming out of that afterwards, I did suffer a really low mental time. I'd got a lovely supportive family around me and though we'd lost all the money. So my escape was I ran away. I went to Australia for a few months and I just ran away. And after a few days or a few weeks, sat out there and traveling around Australia, I thought I'm running away. So I thought I'll go back and and see what I can do with the, with the 10,000 pounds I got left over from my car to start again. So, <laughs> so, so, that, so, I, so I think... That was my escape of dealing with it. And, and on business, yeah. money driving you low. And people don't understand why people... I was suicidal. And I think the thing that really bothers me on being very mentally low is the people don't understand why people commit suicide. And they, they say, mm -hmm. well, they should have come to talk to me or they should have talked about it. But when you're that low, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. So it's just to sort of get freedom in your brain. 
So, so for me, I think how I escaped for it, I ran away and spent a few weeks in Australia and that gave me the strength and the desire to come back and face it and do it again. And then I, and I think if you started with nothing, if you take 50 pence, you can turn that into a pound then because you haven't got all this heavy, heavy debt. I think heavy debt, especially in those days when interest was as expensive as it was. So it's, it, it's, it's dealing with it. I think that's a fantastic question because dealing with mental stress of business is, is probably even more so when you get older because I thought things would get better when I get older and I think you get more lax but then you get less tolerance so I'm on my, I'm on my fourth business startup now and I'm feeling do I really need this it's like this morning when I'm out on the on the new factory trying to build a factory with COVID and things yeah. not happening and nothing coming to t- you think do, do you do you really what, what are you doing all this for but it's it's dealing with that mental pressure and without getting too emotional about it, I guess, and how you deal with it and manage it, that it doesn't drive you down because we still need enough positive energy to go out and do deals and to believe that what we're doing is going to succeed. William, when you realised that you were going to go bankrupt, you were going to lose everything, how do you actually communicate that to, to those that are close to you, to those that, frankly, you, you owe money to, those that work for you and that rely on you for, for paying their mortgage? How do you tell them that actually things aren't as rosy as they might have seemed. I think all those around you, close to you, in, in a sort of sole trader, know, know the finances anyway, so they know that they can't afford to do anything. So it, it almost comes as a massive void. It's almost like a relief in some ways that it's, that's the end of it. Do you know what I mean? It's this mental burn to the actual individual who's trying to carry it every day. And then to everybody around them, it's the supportiveness. And I think that's such a true thing to the whole sort of mental side of life. People do care and they do care a lot more than they probably show. How do you get more money when you've gone bankrupt? Because your credit rating's shot. It is. You are totally, yeah, you are totally done. I got it back again by learning to every asset you have. So if you want to borrow something off somebody or you have, I had some lovely people around me that supported me. And that's a fantastic point because when I went bankrupt, the ones I thought I'd asked for help to turn their back on me, but the ones I least expected to, the ones probably with very little, it was just phenomenal how much the farmers would lend me their equipment. They'd give me some old spuds to plant a seed and they would, they were, they were, it was so warming that the ones that would support you, the ones that do have time, and people obviously don't because they're all limited companies or they just don't go or they have pre-pack administration. But people think people don't go through this sort of thing. And I was very ill-advised how I got myself in such a pickle. But I would say getting myself out of that pickle probably helped me develop my character and my resilience afterwards. What would you say to those entrepreneurs, those individuals, those, those C-suite individuals in businesses that are looking to go it alone, that are going bankrupt, that have something negative going on in their life? What would you say to them? Oh, don't give up. Don't give up. Gosh, I've been in tears. I've been suicidal. I've, I've had, like, last year was a really tough year for me as, as far as doing the business and things. I actually fell ill as well. So I'd have a major operation and, and it's facing the whole sort of mortality thing. And then, and that puts everything into context that we're not here for long. And, and I think you've got to enjoy life and you mustn't have a songs of praise moment on a Sunday. And if anybody's got a songs of praise, or I think the younger guys call it a heartbeat moment. I don't know what's on telly on a Sunday evening now, <laughs> but, but it's, it's not to have that moment on a Sunday. I think it might sound a bit sadistic, but I think you should be looking forward to Monday, yes. Sunday nights. You should be, you should be in your life. You should be looking forward to go at Monday 
and disappointed this Friday and you haven't done as much or Saturday and you haven't quite done as much or achieved as much as you yes. should have done. And I think that's that's what it looks like to me. That's my that's my advice to and, and to do it. I've had my, my my troubles and my tough and my hardship in life. And I think it's conditioning your brain to, to keep going, to keep, don't give up and don't ever, and it's very lonely. It is, as I say, it's tough at the top. You're looking for all these answers every day and there's nobody. You're, you're such a lonely place because you don't literally have anybody. You have to make your own decisions on turning right and left every day. There is a massive cultural difference from America to the UK because in, in the US, people kind of commend to a certain extent entrepreneurs and mistakes and, and going bankrupt and go, great, mate, you did well, you tried and it didn't work, let's do it again. But in the UK, people look at it as, as failure. They do, yes, especially in deep, dark Herefordshire where um, it's like becoming a leper and it was, it was a very lonely experience because, as you say, other parts of the world, people put their arm around you and they'll say, you had a go and, you know, there's no criminal offence being, you know, I paid everybody up, I didn't owe anybody any money. It might have been the bank might have lost a bit, but nobody, nobody lost any money. I, th- I think it's, it's such a... It's such a character-building thing at the time. If somebody said, you're going through this, you know, they say, what makes you bad makes you better. But it, it, I think it's hugely character-building stuff. And from my mental side, because I do run this immense roller, emotional roller coaster through my life, where to get to massive highs, I do seem to go to very deep lows. So some days I like to close the curtains and not go out. And going bankrupt, you've got so many creditors, you've got so many people chasing you for money that you don't know. You know, I, I had the same local lady bank manager looking after me and she'd ring me almost every day saying, I've got these checks for this amount of money. What shall I do? And I'm thinking, I don't know. What shall we do? <laughs> There's nothing you uh, can do. <laughs> and it, the, the, the twist to that was, it was the same lady that rang me about 10 years later when I was trading potatoes. And she said, oh, we've got a check for 200,000. Should we put it on deposit account? I thought, wow, what's a deposit account? I've never, ever had a deposit yeah. account in my life. So... So yeah, but I think going bankrupt really did prepare me for all the mental, probably mentally as much as anything. I think if you can survive, if you can survive it, that you learn about people's kindness and they're not being, they're not, they're not dissing you because a lot of people in sort of these areas like heritage, it makes people feel better if there's somebody worse than them. It's like all those sad people who watch the soaps every day. They love watching those soaps because it makes them feel better. It makes their life look a bit better than all the turmoil and the hardship these other guys are going through. So it's, it's a bit sad thing about society, but I, but I do think it's a reality check. And I think me going bankrupt would have referred through the one thing I, I like to communicate with people is not being arrogant. I hate arrogance and smugness. I think you should talk to people as if they're your friends and not, and you learn that from going bankrupt. So huge beating, but I think coming through it and it's that old expression, what makes you bad makes you better. Um, I wouldn't say I would change it. I would, if I had my life again, I'd love to escape that chapter, but <laughs> yeah. but, it happens. but it formed exactly. you it formed you as an individual yeah. and you, like you said what would your advice be to anybody that's struggling or it's just never give up never 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 give up it's your mm-hmm. life and we only have one of them put your mask on first look after yourself first and, and, and get fit and get at it Why didn't you just liquidate the farm, move on, take the cash, pay the bank off and, and start something else? Because that was never an option. And I can't believe I survived for so long. I can't believe I went from like paying 18% interest over two or three years up to 25% interest as I got deeper and deeper into debt. 
And the worst thing was I wasn't even limited. I had such bad advice. I was a sole trader. So when I finally did fall over the cliff, I lost everything. They took every single thing off me. They, the receiver let me keep my car, which was worth about £10,000. So when I started again, that was the only equity I had was this car worth £10,000 when I was 30. And I was drained of every single asset. Including the family farm, the house, all the assets on it. Everything. The lot. Yeah. And that's why I found a local bank manager that was... Um, brave enough again to help me take it over again and start again. There's a huge amount of a risk in your world though because it's entirely weather dependent right it is you're sort of almost growing lucky crops you've got to grow lucky crops and there's always these lucky crops potatoes they said they used to be like champagne and, and, and mussels or pop and cockles and it's probably more pop and cockles and it, i never really got to see the champagne <laughs> and oysters but uh. we've had a lot of farmers turned entrepreneurs on 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 this program not least tom uh, tom from mama foods who was a farmer turned into into making porridges and has recently actually exited for a good few million quid now look Looking at the work ethic of a farmer and looking at the work ethic of an entrepreneur, there's some serious synergies there in terms of working around the clock, driving forwards and taking pretty significant risks, Will. There is. That's, that's a fantastic point. And I'd really forgotten about that. I think that goes back to upbringing. But if you, if you look at a lot of good farmers, they're not just good at one thing. So most people, large company people or professionals, a farmer, to be a successful farmer, you have to, first of all, be very good with your numbers First of all, securing the finance and using the finance and operating the finance. You have to be very good at husbandry, crop husbandry, animal husbandry, keep your animals or your crops alive and prospering and, and doing well. You have to be a mechanic. Most You can't be a farmer if you're not a good mechanic, if you don't understand how things work. And then there's nutrition, crop nutrition, animal nutrition. So And today, you have to be very good marketing. You look at a lot of farmers, how good they are at marketing themselves or marketing their crops. So... I would say as, as a farmer, you've probably got the biggest, widest brief that any professional would have because you have to do the whole, the whole thing. So for one individual, my career, starting off as a farmer, having to learn doing all of those skills, I think you, can then, you can't ask somebody to do something for you if you don't know how to do it yourself. And I think, but the, the trait with all these things that most farmers and most people I've employed in the past, especially getting to management and senior management level, the biggest mistake that people make, and I've seen it happen with so many farmers, is people don't let go or they're too scared to get somebody in better than themselves. And I think the one thing I've learned in business and life is never be afraid. And it's been the collapse and the probably with a lot of my businesses and people I've taken on, the biggest problem has been individuals, you know, holding on to their job and being scared to get somebody in better than them. And this is probably one of the biggest problems that business faces is, and, and I know a lot of farmers and individual entrepreneurs, they can run small businesses, but they won't let go. They can't trust yeah. people to go. And you have to trust people and you have to accept that it's not always going to work and nine times out of ten it doesn't work. But you have to trust and let go, I think. And, and inspire. I think inspire is an amazing word to get to get to do things, to achieve. If you can't inspire others, if you can't inspire a bank to lend you money or you can't inspire a community to buy your product or you can't inspire people to work, not for you, but work with you, I think that's, that's the thing. And in terms of, you know, when you took the farm over on your 20s, you, you will have had... Uh, staff around that point you you just referenced delegating is kind of the, the key to to growing a business 20 years old 
How do you delegate? Oh, well, you think you do. At that age, you probably do a lot of shouting and getting cross with things and emotional. <laughs> yeah. Tremendously emotional. I was really emotional, even setting up Tyrrells. I can remember the, the emotions I'd have when guys on the farm would park the muck spreader outside the door when the Marks and Spencers are doing an audit or they want to come around. It's quite frustrating. So it's controlling your emotions and being able to communicate with people and still gaining that respect. So that, I think that's a fantastic point because building Tyrrells, I was sort of out there in the morning at five o'clock switching the lights on, trying to get the oil warm and get everything going so when people came to work, it was all ready for them. And then right through to the end of the day that when they went home, I'd be there switching the lights off and, yeah. and sort of tidying up behind them. And I think you get great respect for that. And that's quite easy to build a successful business if you're leading from the front. The hardest part is if you want to do it remotely or do it from distance. You can't just stand on the touchline and shout at people. You've got to try and nurture. And I think that's the secret. And and that sort of, I think, to me, leads always into that question that there's different people in small businesses than large companies. And all my companies, I've struggled very, very heavily with people from larger businesses and the comforts and the and the surroundings of a large company trying to get them to fit in to become multitaskers to work into a small business. Most people in large corporates that have come to work for us say, well, you know, what happens if somebody doesn't turn up for work? How do you manage, you know? And so you, yeah. people just have to work a bit harder and they have to sort of compromise. But it's it's, it's a really interesting conversation that it is with people in life where people in small businesses versus large businesses and, and their take on life. And you say you can turn 50p into a pound if you, for instance, come from nothing or failed. But that takes a lot of mental aptitude and a lot of positive thinking. Most people out there, because you make it sound so easy, William, most people out there would go and genuinely just just give up. You went to Australia two, three weeks, found yourself, came back, sold your car for 10,000 quid. You went to America, if I'm right in saying after that, because you realised that kettle crisps were essentially manufacturing post crisps with leftover potatoes now you know that is essentially the moment your life changed forever right it was yes yeah because i had a successful business trading potatoes I had telephones in those days that were the size of house bricks and I had two of them I had farmers <laughs> on the one side and the market buyers on the other side enjoying ringing me up at five o'clock time when my loads rejected or the world's finishing and it was it's a tough end we could make a bit of money but it was so hard and then one day i had that load of potatoes rejected and we sent them to kettle chips and they were cooking all sorts of rubbish. And in those days, a kettle chip was a great big burnt dark thing. And I had this packet of Cape Cods and I thought, well, that, that's exciting. If we could suddenly, I don't know where the eureka moment came from, but I thought if we could make those. And then I ended up going out, trying to find the kit in the UK. And in those days before Google, you couldn't, you had to go into libraries or sneak into people's factories to find out or know somebody <laughs> who knew somebody how to do things. So my impulse Thought, me, I'll pop over to America and go and see Cape Cod. So I, did, I tried to tell them I was coming, but nobody listened. And I went there, and all I could buy was a mug. They wouldn't show me, tell me anything. So I was going back to New York. And um, just before I flew back, I found this packet of chips in the reception in a hotel in the middle of New York. And it had this guy's name on the back of it, Ken Pardo. And it said, give me a ring. So I rang in there and then. He said, you come and see me, and I'll cancel your flight. Come and see me, and I'll show you how to do it. So I went to see him, and he got all these... Amish, well, they weren't Amish, they were like Mennonites. They could use power and they built all this kit right. and introduced me to them. And, and and the rest is sort of history then. And I sort of flew home and I was watching over my shoulder. And I think that was the one thing that excited me the most in life, that between October, I had a shed full of potatoes, and the following April, we had a fully functional chip, chip factory. And it took us six months to physically build that factory, design it, make a brand. And and to this day, I still surprise myself that I had the ability as a farmer 
a sort of sad multitasking farmer to be able to build a factory, learn how to fry chips, learn about the seasoning, learn about the packaging, the marketing, everything in six months. I mean, it was rapid. And, and I mean, in terms of actually developing that, how did you do it with with no money? Because you'd spent your money on your, your, your airway ticket to, to the US and back. How are you going to buy all the product, buy all the machinery, buy all the factory gubbins that you need to launch a brand? So we begged, borrowed and, and sort of not stole, but we begged, borrowed and things and we did our best bouncing around and tried to, um, and got some finance and sort of got back into it then, bought some old secondhand equipment and it was all, it was all very mechanical. It was all very basic. We had sort of, you'd see the farm, we started making the chips, the farm guys would be in their overalls and their wellies sort of stirring away at the chips and not quite chasing chickens out the factory, but it wasn't far behind it. It was quite sort of, um, but, but, but it worked, you know, and it, and it worked and we had so many problems. The packaging machine I bought was cheap and secondhand was made for doing nuts and bolts and every 10th packet used to have a hole in it. So I used to have my ladies used to pack because I had to feel every packet to make sure that, you know, and it was, but, but you get all that. That's all part of the fun of starting off and the pain and being, and as you said, that's, that's, a, that's a great question of, yours, of how resilient you can be to the problems because there are problems, aren't there? And you've got to be so resilient to those problems. It is a tough thing, getting money, getting credibility. People think it, it is easy, but it's not. Nobody has endless amounts of cash. No business does. Everybody's trying to maximize the use of their cash. And it's, I don't know how some people do it. it it's, it's, and they don't. Sometimes people are lucky that things make more money than they're budgeted. But quite often, it's like your domestic owns managing your own personal cash. It's, it never comes to what you think it does. It always comes to more. If you buy a new kitchen, it always comes to a lot more money than you budget yeah, it on. It never, it never stretches far enough. <laughs> it never does. And in terms of structuring that business, you say the ladies that were packing the crisps and the guys that were running around essentially chasing chickens. Were they the people that were with you from day one that came back to William Chase because they trusted his vision and they trusted him as an individual? Yeah, they were local guys. And I feel the trait of selling the business because... I'd got such an amazing people. And I think that culture, even to Tyrrell's being sold a few times since I got out of it, I think you don't realise that a business is all about the people. It's not It's not how... I, I probably got a bit carried away thinking I was brilliant and the quality of our product was brilliant and the service. It wasn't that. It was just quite simply, I had some amazing, fantastic people in Tyrrell's that that put the job ahead of their life. They they loved the business. They believed in it with me. And that's what you need, I think. It's that and that goes back to the inspiring thing that a good business has fantastic people working in it. And just talk to me about who you had working in it then in the early days, because it was your vision, your idea, your investment, your farm. Who did you have around you to help you take it to that? Because within a couple of years, you were turning over 14 million quid. And you'd come from literally nothing, having lost literally everything. To multi-million pounds. Basically guys off the farm, some local ladies from the from the village that um, came to do the sort of the distribution and and local guys. Nobody came out of the industry who had local young guys to do the sales and marketing. And most of it would do, do, do it ourselves. We'd shows and events, we'd go off the guys off the farm, we'd take all the stuff and go and do it. And I think one of the one of the probably the biggest Eureka points in my life that I learned about marketing was as soon as we started, I met a lovely guy and sadly passed away last year called Charles Campion. He's a lovely guy. And I told him my story. And so he did a few pages in, in the centre of the Sunday Times about it. And he took, I probably, I'm probably waffling too much now, but I probably talk too much. But it's quite interesting talking to a journalist and then they pick out all of the best things. So what he taught me was probably one of the biggest 
eureka moment in learning how to market and sell was look at how a journalist tells your story because the hardest part is probably journalism because you have to take all these boring stories and make them sound nice and the way charles campion wrote it he taught me so much about how to articulate and appeal to people and make a brand humble i don't think a brand can be arrogant and show to people and it can't be so wet that it can't do things you have to sort of communicate with people as if they're your friend and not the enemy Tesco's. Talk to me about Tesco's in the early days, Will. Tesco's, it's a bittersweet thing with Tesco's, really, because when I went bankrupt, to get the money again to get going, I had a lovely lady that used to, I used to sell potatoes to, and she said, look, William, she said, I need beautiful potatoes. If you can get farmers in your area, because we were in Herefordshire at the time, where it wasn't really a potato-growing area, but we could grow cosmetically pretty potatoes. And in the 80s, was this huge surge in supermarkets selling cosmetic veg. These people weren't buying veg in the 80s and the 90s anymore for its taste or its seasonal. They were buying it on cosmetics. So all the supermarkets wanted cosmetically pretty-looking potatoes. And that was probably another reason I got into tills, because we were getting to the end of that when you get something that's an opportunity, a, a lucky crop or a fad or something, you have to get in and get out at the right time. So she was she was phenomenal. So with Tesco's, we formed this thing where I'd source the potatoes. So I basically became a potato source trader for Tesco's, which, which that worked really well for a year or two. But then again, once the supply gets better, you could see the cracks and that's when Tyrrell's sort of started. So, you know, I went into Tyrrell's, but because I dealt with supermarkets under that pressure of constant price pressure all the time, what was just so nice was being able to make a product with Tyrrells, put it on pallets and not have to worry where anybody was looking for the good ones because it was, you were being, suddenly you were selling something with your own brand on it. And then we suddenly, it was the boom then of the farm shops about 2000, the, the middle of the sort of 2000 to 2004, five time was a massive surge in farm shops and small independent traders and they used to love it because they could buy a packet of Tyrrells for a pound and they could sell it for two so they'd get a 100% markup and 50% margin so they were making more money out of Tyrrells than anybody else and then we bought the vegetable chips in which made them even a bigger margin and then Waitrose wanted them so we put them in Waitrose and Waitrose would make probably 30-40% more margin out of Tyrrells than they'd make out of um, Kettles or Sensations or all these other products so we were doing really well and, and, and fantastic relationship with Waitrose because at the time they were expanding and developing um, relationships with farmers who really did have a true story to tell. And then one day we had this call then that because we were selling, there was no discounts or promotions in Tyrrells while we were building every packet. There were two prices we used to sell Tyrrells at. It was either full price or it was free. And what was full price? A pound? So full price was about a pound a packet and the customers got the chance to double their money on it. So And how much did it cost you then, William? It cost us about 10 15 pence a packet to make them so, so you're making good margins on that it was it was a good margin not to start with it probably cost us when our packaging machine used to keep chucking out duff packets and everything went horribly wrong it's probably costing us a pound to make a packet but once we got <laughs> yeah. going we could get the price down to about 50, 15 pence and and the most exciting thing with a lot of businesses if you watch their growth Normally, as most businesses grow, everybody has to go for this fixation, especially crowdfunding and all brands now. They have to go at this lightning growth. But the peril of that lightning growth means getting listed in discounters. So the amount of retros and support you have to give. So your average price per per outer goes down while your average price goes up. The magical thing with Tyrrells was as we invent innovated, the price went up. And so our margin went up because our cost of production went down. So I suppose you owned all the kits. 
as well, Will? You owned the farm, you owned the kit, you owned all the IPs, so surely you weren't paying rents on anything, so the margins were just getting better and better. That's right, and the overheads, there was nobody probably paid over sort of 40,000 a year in the business as well, so there were no high overheads, there were no fat cats, there were no corporate guys. The, the first thing you get the corporate guys in, they have to put a team in place, and, and it's... And wages and salaries, I think we could run the business at about 15, under, well under 20%, which was a good... Um, That's incredible. That is. But what strikes me as, as, as remarkable is the fact that Tesco's were essentially buying grey crisps. They were buying it on the grey market, right? You're not going to let that one go. <laughs> I'm not. I'm fascinated by it. No, no, people good. on this podcast, though, Will, who have sold grey kit, grey Cisco kit, to individuals and made millions, I mean hundreds of millions, and he's coming back on the podcast in a few weeks. But buying grey chips and selling them as a normal sort of RRP price, that's a bit corrupt, is it not? Yeah, but as people say, <laughs> it's not personal, it's business, isn't it? That's what they said to me at the time. But um, it's quite fascinating about it. We've built this beautiful little model with Tyrrells, no discounts, no retros. We're doing so well with Waitrose. That one day somebody told me, he said, your, your product's in Tesco's. I said, no, it's not in Tesco's. And then a few people would say, yeah, you're in Tesco's, you're here, there. So what it transpired, the Tesco's had gone to a wholesaler that was selling on, bought a few lorry loads, of our stuff and they were selling it sort of at quite a strong discount so they got managed to get me in for a meeting and this is in the days when tesco's were very very aggressive they were the best they were performing they they were doing so well but that the pressure they were putting on farmers for their food and the margin and at the detriment of the farmers really and and it was probably the climax the top i'd say of the cheap and easy food time that we've had and i don't think those days will come back but it was a time when you know cheap wasn't cheap enough for for supermarkets putting their price and anybody really on, on their commodities. It was that day that I said, you know, we've got to do something about this. So they wanted a meeting. So I went in there and I went through the whole corporate thing of having, you know, a meeting with them. And they basically said, you know, you should leave the marketing and things to us and you should get back on your farm and do do what you know best. And so it was quite an arrogantly led meeting on their behalf. And I thought about it for a few seconds. And then for some reason that we had a bit of interest in the Telegraph or interested in doing a story about it. So I thought, wow, do we do, do we do a few million quids worth of business with Tesco's or do we stand up for what we believe in? So we did our thing with the story. Then the Saturday night, the phone went and it was a Today programme and they wanted to do a thing with the Archbishops leading about fair trade. And so we, had, we did the Today programme at six o'clock on the Sunday morning. And that day, I think there was about 20 interviews and it was sort of at the time when it was about the sort of underdog, you know. So it, 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 taught, it was amazed me, the support. And the, and the reason the Tesco's wanted to, they said I should charge the same price i should get into line and do the same price as kettles and sensations which tyrrells probably are now down to those levels but in the time i thought no and it taught me for a brand to be so strong to be able to stand up making something to a quality to a standard and not to a price that's i think the ultimate in marketing really if you can sell a brand on desire and not on not on price obviously it wasn't that personal but it was quite a tough thing to actually stand up and and be on the sharp end of of that experience of obviously people wouldn't do that today because of those things it was like a 10 year old being asked to do 10 sides on euthanasia obviously you don't people don't trade like that and they don't do things like that today but it's (laughs) it's quite a fascinating point that where the market and where the world and how people trade trade is today but it's 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 a brand that's strong enough and there's only another car it was only levi's the only other people that ever delisted 
Tesco's on stocking stuff on the grey market. But it was certainly a massive experience for me. Well, I mean, it wasn't short, It wasn't long after the fact that you'd, you'd almost shoved two fingers up to Tesco's and, and kind of, you know, maintained your margins, I suppose, that you started to turn over roughly, you know, 14 million quid. You then obviously went to the bank and asked the bank for a bit more money to be able to grow the business. Now, the bank made it conditional. They made sure that you had to put a management team in place and you had to have a certain amount of structure to be able to get uh, this loan, for instance. You know, what did you do at that point? Who did you hire? How did you know the right people to hire? And, you know, did you go about doing that? Or did you, again, put two fingers up to the bank and go, I know best? I, I, sh- I should have done, actually. I should have put two fingers up to everybody and carried on as well because we were fine. We had a great team. And I took the advice. I took the advice of, like, some accountants, some advisors. And they said, oh, you've got to have a managing director and you've got to put this team in and you've got to do this and that. And then as soon as we did that, the whole sort of magic structure about the company, it suddenly got where everybody is working for themselves and they weren't working for the company anymore. So they're more worried about their buying their Range Rover Sports or their package or their (laughs) buying their Ferrari one day than they were about the actual business. And so it's... It's it's a it, we could talk for days about equity and giving people equity and and how people travel through a business um, development from nothing into something that's that's obviously a brand that's a tangible brand that's worth money and there is a culture and and you cannot there's some you know again going back to one of my you know one of great guys something like Doyle that did Dollar Shaves to make a company that's worth a few billion. And he's done it with 12 people. I think it's it's phenomenal how small teams of exceptionally hardworking people can, how much they can produce compared to the corporate monster of, of how people do it. So it's, it, it's, but I did, I did fall into that trap and, and I wouldn't go back there again now. I've done it twice. I probably fell into that tra- trap again with the distillery and I wouldn't go there again this time around with this business. I just wanted to be a, um, an employee owned company and trading without the need for for the guys that just worried about their Ferraris and their and their short-term gain. Because there is, I think, brands that have got full tenacity. If they, if they actually physically make their own products, and they do, they don't just have to sign up to B Corp or a few things to tick a few boxes or plant a few trees, but they genuinely are responsible and they're good employers and they're actually manufacturing. I think the, the world of manufacturing is gone. There's so many brands that pop up that outsource everything. But we are beginning to see now that you do have to own your manufacturing if you want a successful business. So, William, looking back at the point that you had your Ferrari day, your Range Rover Sport day, in 08, you, you sold the business, essentially, for 30 million quid to Langholm Capital. Now, you know, it was named Tyrrells. That was the family farm. You let go of it for a decent wedge of cash. But was it that easy to let go, irrespective of the of the monetary value, because it was your family home? It was something you built from nothing. Yeah, it's your baby, isn't it? And I think I sold it because I'd probably already let them in. So I think they'd probably already spoilt it, the corporates. And and it, and it is. It's, it's when you build something and it's your train set. You've got your goods trains, you've got your passenger trains, you've got everything perfect. And you're, you're buying everything. You're not doing it on the never-never. For the first time in my life, we were building a, a, biz, a brand organically. We weren't soliciting our sales. We weren't paying for sales. And then because I let these corporates in, we were suddenly paying for sales and and... They believe, a lot of people believe that the only way you can sell something is to pay somebody to take it, which that's not my that's not my method at all. You make something of good quality and people buy it off you and pay you for it. That's that should be the theory. So so, so, so yes, I think it was when I look back at it, it's your baby and you've dressed your baby in your clothes. It's like um 
is that I called it chips. There's a massive difference between a chip and a crisp. And I just love it when people used to write in and say, they're not chips, they're crisp. Chips are something you have with your eggs or your fish and crisps are something you... But, but it wasn't. A crisp is something that's flat and it has all the starch washed out of it. And it's high in fat and it's, it's m- m- industrial processed. Whereas a, a hand-fried potato chip is, is something that has a lot less fat and it's cooked with, it's very difficult to cook. We're not going to that now, but it's very hard to, to make it. So it was obviously when it had a redesign and a refresh, they have to turn chips into crisps because you're selling it in Tesco's too for, a, you know, and doing twofers and bog offs. And so you're, it's, it's so, so that's all part of it really is, is doing what you stand. It was probably the same with the distillery. I, what I loved about the distillery was having a somewhat, say, single estate. And then when you have the corporates get involved, they, they say, well, you can't call it single estate because people don't know what that means. You know, you've got to call it farmer Palmer and farm to bottle or something. Or I believe it's, it's like a brand. If you start a smart brand off, you have to start off at the top and you have to sell it to people who physically understand what it's getting. And then once you get into mass market, You've got people buying it just because their friends are telling them they're buying it. They're not buying it because they actually physically understand it. And that's, to me, that's brand magic and brand value that a, that a brand can not earn its reputation, but it can, it can, it can generate slowly its, its credibility. Do you regret letting the corporate into the business? Oh, yeah, I do, yeah. My advice to anybody, if you've got a beautiful business, don't let them in. Because you don't need, you don't need huge management teams. There's almost like a corporate joke. It's how many corporates does it take to change a light bulb? And that's infinitive number. And it's, but whereas you get a true entrepreneur, or you're going back to where we started this conversation with your true farmer, you just, you know, you know what size bulb it needs, you switch it off and you just do it yourself and you just do it. So it's, it's again, it's almost like that speedboat working. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I have so much respect for people that can keep the business and they haven't let the corporates in like James Dyson what, what amazing business he's yeah. done and he's been such, he's well. a lovely character and and to do what he does is is phenomenal and so I, I would if I had my time again I'd do what James Dyson or even the Bamford family if you look at JCBs they haven't let the corporate spoil it they've kept it and kept the innovation beautiful brand great business Would you do it if you didn't get paid 30 million quid at the end of the tunnel? Would you just do it to be able to have a farm, a way of life, a lifestyle? Because you had a big paycheck. You said you didn't necessarily do it for the Ferrari or the Range Rover, but actually you've been there, you've done it, you've got the T-shirt. Maybe now you wouldn't do it for the Ferrari and Range Rover. But surely when you went bankrupt, you did want something out the bag. No, 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 no. To me, it's not the money. It's, it, sounds, it sounds weird, but we only need, need so much to live. It's not the money. It's the fact that you can find the magic. And people think I'm off. I'm a bit crazy when I talk about the magic. But it's, there is a magic to a brand, and it's just finding that magic and finding the desire. And I know so many people that deserve to have done so much better, so many entrepreneurs that have, that have had a really brilliant idea. And they say there's millions of ideas in the graveyard, but it's, it's bringing those ideas to action and it, quite often it's timing. Timing, if I had had my timing in different ventures, if you know, it's only fermenting live foods is only just really coming back into it. So now, when I did Tyrrell's factory, if I had built a, a, a live pickle factory, then I, we'd probably been finished by now. So, <laughs> so there, is, there, is, there is a timing. T- timing is yes. right. But that, that's you touched on a, on a fantastic point there. That, and I probably thought I could do it again. And there is yes. the challenge to do it again. And we, we only live once. And it's, it's, it's not just the money. It's the, um, it's the achievement. There's nothing better than, than building a brand. It's like Tyrrell's. It's, it's a phenomenal brand. And it had the magic from day one. 
And when you see it now from airlines to everywhere I travel around the world, it's it's naturally got the magic. And it's had some pretty poor parents as well through parts of its life looking at and it's the brand is so robust and strong. It's in, I think it's in good hands now and it's 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 in a safe home. So it is it, it is it is a fascinating one to see your but your brand is like your baby and it's it's imagine, you know, you bringing up your baby and then somebody else takes it and dresses it. Just after you got rid of your first baby being Tyrrells and, and sold out there, you decided to to reinvest and have another baby and you decided to go into the world of sort of vodka essentially alcohol drinks and and chase vodka um was born and obviously you used an element of the capital that you got from your exit to invest in into chase distillery into this into this new business why did you bother doing it again you could have just gone and had a great life in australia that's a fantastic question and if I'd done that, I wouldn't have done Tyrrells. I wouldn't have been the sort of person that could. I would have just given up when I'd gone bankrupt when I was 30. And I just would have gone to work for somebody or something. So I think it was in my character to fight. Because I think I'll, I'll never be happy wherever I am. I think there's always more. When will you be satisfied, though? If you're never going to be happy, William, when will you be satisfied? Have you got to that point in life yet? Well, I don't think you ever get there, do you? I'd never want to retire. I think you just want to keep going faster. You've got to, you need you need a sounds a bit a bit of a sadist, doesn't it? But, but I think you need we all need a challenge. And and another word I love is catalyst. We need a catalyst. Another interesting thing was was getting involved with really large companies and listening to how they manage their HR. And and a lot of them divide people into three sectors. They say to be a success in life, you need if you had three marks for each point, you have to first of all be driven and you know, get up in the morning and go. The second thing you have to be you have to be intelligent, and it's not just by exam results. You have to be common sense and just whether you're streetwise or however. And the third one then is charisma and charm. So if you had three points in each, there's a really large firm. This is how they deal. And if you've got three, you're a nine pointer. You could be CEO, MD, material. So, but to survive in the business, you've got to have at least six points. And it's it, what was quite fascinating with that was how. I've changed through through the last 20 years on whether it's charisma, drive, but I think the first thing we all need is just the ambition. Even if things keep crashing down and going wrong, and you look at most of these entrepreneur stories, the key thing is that when it goes wrong, is a, is a true entrepreneur will put it in the bin and get up again and put it behind them. They'll bury it. They won't dwell on it and keep having regrets. You've got to bury the bad news and move forwards. Well, I mean, going into the world of vodka, it seems in hindsight a natural, you know, progression from the world of potato into potato vodka, and and that just makes sense. But why did you not do it sooner? You know, why didn't you pull it forwards and do Tyrrells and Chase Distillery? Did you need the cash? Did you just not have the time? No, it started out as Tyrrell's vodka. And then the, all the experts said, you can't have two brands. You can't be in potato chips and vodka with the same thing. And I thought it would allow us to go into it. I was probably a bit naive with the vodka. I thought all the vodkas were just industrial made spirit sold for there's some famous brands on the market and all they were talking about was the bling ching ching the cocktails and they weren't actually talking about what was in it. So yes. what we did with Tyrrell's, I thought, wow, if we could make a vodka that probably doesn't give you a headache like the others, that is truly, you could tell people which field it came from. Yes. And then make that, and then I found out the gin was made from vodka. We're probably a bit ahead of the curve because in those days to get a still, the customs would have to come and live on your farm almost. So you had to have a 2,000 litre still, you had to have a boiler the size of an Arctic lorry to drive it. So it was was a few million quid to get into distilling in 2006, seven. Whereas in 2008, the government in their wisdom decided to drop the thing down to... 
uh, anybody could compound gin, not distill it, but they could get a license to compound and they could get a little domestic boiler and for under the, say, 100K, the price of a posh car, they could put a little distillery together. So that's when they all sort of mushroomed up. The whole idea behind it was to sell a vodka. And then I was inspired by meeting Sidney Frank and he sold Grey Goose for a few billion. Love Grey Goose. And I thought, well, that's that's exciting, that is. And yeah. and that was just sold simply, you know, on on marketing, on, on great marketing. He did that in six years as well. But it's an incredibly competitive world as well. And, and the fact that you'd built Tyrrells to an exit of 30 million, the contacts that you had at the likes of Tesco's, the likes of Waitrose, etc. Surely that helped you in the long run, William, with, with stocking, you know, Chase Vodka on the shelves of these supermarkets because you didn't have to go and knock down that door and go, hi, I'm William Chase. This is my brand. I'm new to the business world. You could simply call up Harry from Tesco's and go, right, stock it, it's good stuff, and he'll trust you. No. No? No, you, you watch Dragon's <laughs> Den, and it's so sad. The people say, oh, I know, I have friends in, in places. It just doesn't work like that. Why is that? There's no solicited sales. It was such a humbling meeting, say, with Waitrose, when I left Tyrrell's and I started the distillery on its own. In my first meeting, they sold one bottle of Grey Goose per store per week. You know, when we were used to owning three or four metres in the snack section, I thought, gosh, this is this is going to be a different, this is going to Rubbish. be a different story. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's, um, it's a tough one. And, and were people ready? You know, Chase was amazing product. It was the first to have true pedigree in the world. And it still is. It's, it's amazing product. But the sad thing is that spirits, most people actually put them in cocktails or they mix them up and they don't, it's not like wines or whiskey where you actually drink it neat and taste it. So it was, it was a tough one, but I, I, I do believe we got there in the end, but it was it was so very hard. But part of building a brand for me in my life, one of the most interesting things is is how it's got me into the world. Like with Tyrrells, it got me to go and travel the world to buy the equipment. I sold Tyrrells into all, I just made it my mission to sell it into all four corners. With the distillery, we made a point to get into every country, whether it's stuck or not was another thing, but we still thought, why, why not? Let's go and do every single country. And the same with Willie's now, with, with the live probiotic foods. We we've still have the objective, and we're on a massive trend. It's nice to sell something that's with desire, that's on a demand. Your business, your life, I suppose your legacy, William. Your sons are in the business. Now, they haven't had to go through the trials and tribulations that you've had to go through. They haven't had to go bankrupt, for instance, but they've been almost gifted a business which is working, which will work, which has the money to continue to work irrespective of what's thrown at it. Do you think they get business like you do? It's, it's a very tricky one, that one, isn't it? Because they say, should you treat your children as a, as a friend or should you treat it as a, as a stranger? And, and a lot of families where they've had success in the families, they say it's probably better off not to be too friendly. But I think we're lucky that they're, they're great at business. They love it. And they find their own. And we've had some we've had some fantastic fun together as well in the business. Nothing lasts forever. And I think myself, if I'd been privileged and, and grown up into a lot of money, I think I'd been quite happy spending all summer in the Cote d'Azur and the winter in the Alps. And I wouldn't have been one to be spent any time in business at all, probably. So it is in trying to install that that hunger and you're incredibly passionate and i'm sure they're incredibly passionate william as to as to what they're doing within the business irrespective of what sector they may be in or what department within within willies now looking at you as an individual you are to me clearly successful i'm sure a lot of people listening to this will think you're successful as well but to you will what is success well that's a good question isn't it what does success look like success looks to me and that's my trouble is i've got this gene that it that 
is enough is never enough. And so success to me is, is a success. It's, it's, it's getting a widget out there and people wanting it and the desire for it and it to sell and trade. And success, you can't sort of, you've got to nurture it. It's got to come from itself. But success to me is, is just simply making something, making a mark, creating a desire, getting paid. And, and that's all there is to it. And then those customers coming back again, not selling something to somebody once, but selling it to them again and again and again. You're improving somebody's lives. That's why I said I'll go back to somebody like James Dyson. From what he's done, if you can improve people's lives, not by the products you're making, but by the actual business. I like to think back on the amount of people we've employed. That I think we've helped a lot of people develop their skills because I think 90% of people are in the wrong jobs. I think the majority of human beings could do an awful lot more if they were inspired and they were put in the right, you know, the right system. I think the corporate system is is terrible once these big companies with inspiring young people to become multitasking and and I think if you can get young people into very entrepreneurial environment and show them their own ability. It, it's it's phenomenal. So well, your recent business Willie's ACV, if I wanted to buy some, where can I get it? So Willie's were available in Waitrose, Sainsbury's, any store that respects live healthy food, it's available in. So any any store. Um, it's amazing the online sales dealing we left now to deal with making lots of fresh live ferments, the things that we can't sell through retailers that is only about for a couple of weeks. Things like live kombucha and different products, so we sell it all on the online. And and today it is all about digital and D2C is the obviously the top word for any business. William, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I love what you've built. I love the brands. Best of luck to you and best of luck to your sons in the business. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Coming up next week. I think, again, it's just sort of don't get too high with the highs and don't get too low with the lows. You know, you're, you're going to go through moments of great growth and it's so exciting and you're conquering the world and then there the are moments where it's like it's tougher and it's a grind and the team aren't that happy and your investors aren't that happy and it can change so fast thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year capsule cover capsule cover a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses supports some of the uk's most innovative and ambitious companies sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts we're on a journey with capsule and so should you be If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. See you next week, 8am on all podcast platforms. Simply subscribe or ask your smart speaker to play Success is in the Mind podcast. This is a Pinpoint Media podcast presented by me, Oliver Bruce, produced by Dan Miller and Fergus Bruce, edited and designed by Harry Fox and Victoria Bramwell, filmed by Madeline Harris, marketed by Ellie Hanwell and Rachel Buchanan-Hughes and managed by Bethan Wyatt and Annabelle Lawton-Smith. Quite a team. Thanks, guys. If you know anyone you think we should interview, if you want to tell your story or have your say, please reach out to me directly via podcast at pinpoint-media.co.uk. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Cheers, guys. 